Two years ago, the Whangarei branch of the Hearing Association was worth about $600,000. It had a bank balance of 100000 and it owned a building specially designed for its members' needs, worth nearly half a million. This was the social room, and the secretary of the time was a prolific fundraiser. He used to write letters to national charitable trusts, and he was keen on indoor bowls. And one of the specifications for this room was that it had to be long enough for indoor bowls, which was an ideal thing for uh, hearing-impaired people because they had to talk to one another and listen. And so it was a good recreational thing for them to have and, and to come together. Of course, you remember there was no television in those times. George Wilson, a retired ear, nose and throat surgeon, now in his 80s, helped design the acoustically excellent club rooms. Having suffered major hearing loss in his 20s, he knew how isolating the condition could be. As patron of the Hearing Association, he was a strong supporter of its fundraising efforts, along with his family. His wife, Trish, remembers the cake stall years. My memory is of, the, is of these wonderful women, and they were all elderly. Um, my mother-in-law would have been in her 70s, I would think, and every Friday, without fail, those women turned up and had a bring and buy. And I always call the Hearing Association rooms built on a sponge cake or sponge cakes. But those women worked so hard all those years. The, the men raised probably the bulk of the money, but the women also raised a lot of money. And those women, a lot of the women weren't um, hearing impaired themselves, but they maybe had hearing impaired children. And a lot of those women um, were looking at um, probably the 60s a lot of those women left money to the Hearing Association, those elderly women. And in those days, women didn't have a lot of money of their own. Um, I know one woman that had, I think she had deaf children, and she left $10,000, which was a lot of money in those days. Till two years ago, many other community groups used the Hearing Association rooms for meetings because of the excellent acoustics. The building even had purpose-built sound booths and rooms where therapists could do hearing tests and counsel clients in private. Cathy Zonneveld, the hearing therapist who worked there, says volunteers from the association complemented her services. It was an ideal arrangement and many of the volunteers themselves were people who had hearing loss themselves and so they really understood the ups and downs of living with hearing loss and they were able to draw upon their own personal experiences to um, offer practical support for other people with hearing loss. So much for history. These days, the old hearing association rooms are owned and occupied by a firm of surveyors. The meeting rooms become a file library. The sound booths have morphed into noise-proof lavatories. Cathy Zonnevelt works from a noisy office in Bank Street. And Northland people with hearing loss no longer have a place to go where everyone knows their names and their needs. So how did that happen? Anne Shaw, the treasurer at the time, says the nightmare began with the AGM in March 2005. I arrived at the Hearing Association uh, rooms on Deverin Street and there was a mass of people there. And uh, this was strange because usually for AGMs, for uh, community organisations, you have a job getting a quorum, never mind a crowd. So there was a huge amount of people 
and uh, I, I really didn't understand, didn't think they were going to the Hearing Association AGM. But when I actually got inside, I heard from Fiona, who was the then administrator, that a whole load of people had been signed up as members that particular morning. Did that worry you? Oh, yeah, I thought it was all a bit strange and possibly I was a bit naive, you know, not realising that, that it was a, you know, that they'd brought the crowd in to, to take the meeting over. In the chair at that meeting was the president, Anne Whitfield. With the approval of the committee, she stood down in favour of her son, Mark. Also elected to the new committee was Mark Whitfield's wife, Erica Kemp, a rest home worker and one-time manager of Thought, the Whangarei Māori Health Agency, which imploded after misusing nearly a million dollars of government funding. And elected along with her from the floor were four people who'd joined the association just one week before. Anne Shaw says none of the old members had ever heard of them and none of them appeared to be wearing hearing aids. I found out after the meeting that most of the new members had been, their subscriptions had been paid by um, Mark Whitfield and later on a lot of the receipts that were sent out to those members came back as not known at this address. But, you know, that was after the meeting had been hijacked. Of the crowd who voted at the meeting, 21 had signed on as members just one working day before the AGM, and one of those people was elected as the new treasurer. Unfortunately, the, uh, the constitution, I believe, allowed, I believed at that stage, allowed for nominations to be taken from the floor. We'd had, nomina we'd had written nominations in for the executive committee, and... Um, and were quite happy with the nominations that had come in and they'd been sort of okayed by the executive committee. But then during the meeting, a whole load of... When it came to the election of officers, a whole load of other people were, were nominated and voted in by sheer numbers of the people that had been brought in specifically, I think, for that, for that purpose. In fact, the Constitution did not allow nominations from the floor at the AGM. It also said new members had to be approved by the committee before they could be accepted or vote. But the Hearing Association had not applied either rule consistently in recent years. When the old committee members, deeply alarmed at the takeover, consulted a lawyer, they were told it would cost $20,000 to take the matter to court and that it was by no means certain they'd win back control. It was absolutely devastating because by this stage we realised what may happen, that there was a, uh, a building that was worth between five hundred and $750,000 and it was freehold and had been built with uh, fundraising and grants from uh, the ASB and various other, uh, other funding organisations. So there was a building there that was freehold that was worth up to 750000 and we had $100,000 cash in the bank. So that was our, our worry. The old members appealed to the Registrar of Incorporated Societies in the hope the AGM could be declared null and void, but that hope was dashed as well. Justin Highgate, the Group Manager of Business Registries, says the Registrar has no power to intervene in matters of meeting process. The, the, the legislation doesn't provide uh, for us to, to go in, and, uh, in a, in a heavy-handed or administrative way. There are some provisions for us to carry out investigations 
in in the more severe uh, but but the, uh, the the more common experience where someone rings up and says that the meeting wasn't carried out the way it should have been and so on the registrar does not have authority nor a role to come in and and uh, you know, make inquiry about how the meeting went and, and who said what and Shaw says the prospect of handing over the association's hard-won assets was painful and the old members hung on to the checkbook as long as they could but she was in for a shock I came home one day from uh, from work and uh, there were two messages on my answer phone and, and the second one was somebody unknown to me threatening that if I didn't um, give up the, the checkbooks and hand over all the documents that to watch out, to watch my back. They knew where I lived and to watch my back and I was absolutely shaking by the time the phone call ended. Mrs Shaw called the police who traced the call. The offender, one of the new members, was prosecuted and punished, but the pressure was on. George Wilson, desperate to salvage the work of 50 years, called up an old friend. Colin Edwards, a Whangarei mediator, has in the past investigated and won cases against Telecom and the charity's businessman Gary Knapp, forcing paybacks in both cases. But this was to prove his toughest challenge yet. His first step was to call a public meeting. The new group turned up with their renter mob, 40 of them, chanting with placards and which said down with apartheid and all sorts of other nonsense. And they demanded to come into the meeting and said that it was a public meeting. I had personally rented the hall and I told them they weren't coming in unless they behaved. And they certainly weren't coming in with their placards. So the 40 of them advanced on me but stopped a couple of feet short because they realised that violence probably wasn't going to do their cause any good. But they, they tried to turn it into a race issue, but in fact it was nothing to do with race. Anyway, the, the new so-called President Mark is Pākehā, his wife is Māori, so... The meeting failed to resolve the standoff. The old committee changed the locks on the association building. The new committee broke in and occupied it. And in the end, after legal threats, the old committee gave in and released the checkbook. And Colin Edwards, along with many concerned people in Whangarei, could only watch and wait as the spending began. Their fears were soon confirmed. In the first year, Mr Whitfield and his new committee splashed out on a $3,000 water blaster and some very nice furniture, including a bedroom suite, a leather lounge suite and a set of Jamie Oliver cookware. Mr Whitfield and his wife were also awarded wages and $2,000 clothing allowances by their fellow committee members. Mr Edwards complained to the Registrar of Incorporated Societies, but little could be done. They said they would look into it. Um, the spending was bad but not fraudulent, not absolutely outrageous. It was inappropriate, it was silly, um, it was unnecessary, but there were excuses for it. Like we had to have this furniture for our clients, they need good furniture, and of course... They didn't have to answer to me, and I didn't contact them. But Crown Law clearly had to give them the right to defend themselves. And this happened slowly. They would write a letter to the committee, and the committee would write back a month later with all their explanations, and then they would write back and say, these aren't satisfactory. And it, it ground on slowly. But the next breakthrough came in April 2007. By then, most of the old members had been scared off, or as in George Wilson's case, struck off as members by the new regime. And it was not easy getting access to the accounts or even getting into the AGM, but the old committee found a way. 
they realised that somehow people were going to try and get into the AGM. The two people they suspected, they got their lawyer to serve trespass orders so that they couldn't go to the hearing association rooms or the AGM. And then they put a guard on the door. Fortunately, uh, we got a brave elderly soul who joined up as a member and got into the meeting and, and they didn't suspect him. He was a hero. Uh, without him, the whole... Uh, situation could have gone on and on and on and when he got the those accounts they were totally outrageous they uh, had spent 10 times their income and they they were just spending on everything because they they sold the purpose-built building that the association had had and built up over 40 years they sold that for half a million and then they bought a new building for 310000 which gave them nearly 200000 to spend. And then a few months later, we discovered um, that Mark had stepped down as president and was now the manager. His wife had stepped up as president with all her family on the committee. And having spent a lot of money on this house and bought it for 310000 they then sold it to him for under 300000 which was probably dollars $70,000 below value. Further sleuthing by Colin Edwards revealed that the committee had also bought Mark Whitfield's Commodore for $40,000 and traded it in three months later for 18000 on a much flasher vehicle. They bought an $83,000 car, a Toyota Land Cruiser, with a $1,000 refrigeration unit, tinted windows, $1,400 worth of bull bars. And this was supposedly for him to go round and, and do hearing tests. The revelations of the property deal in particular brought swift action at last from Crown Law. Once I got these accounts, I rang them up straight away and said, this has escalated enormously. And they said, yes, it's got to a whole new level. And they started to act then very quickly. I mean, it's sad that you have to wait for them to do things really, really bad before you can do anything, because, of course, so much of the money was spent by then. But within a month, they had frozen the bank account and stopped them spending. But there was only 30000 left in. So out of the original assets when they started, which would have been over 600000 including the building, they were down to 30,000. The Solicitor General launched an investigation under the Charitable Trusts Act into the association's affairs in May this year. Such inquiries are not common. But the Whangarei National MP, Phil Heatley, who'd been lobbying the Solicitor General for action for some time, says considering how much evidence the locals had gathered, it's disappointing it took so long to happen. From there, it took, seemed to take an awful amount of time, but I was reluctant to uh, push the issue because I knew that they had to be thorough, um, collect all the information and secure a pretty solid case. Uh, but I do have uh, some regret that I perhaps I could have ridden the Solicitor General a lot harder because every day or week or month that went past as they did the investigations, uh, more and more money was misappropriated and more and more history, uh, as I say, went down the tubes. Crown Law won't respond to that criticism because it hasn't quite finished with the Whangarei Hearing Association. Last month it asked the High Court to put the branch into liquidation as the best way to save the remaining assets. 
the High Court agreed. Justice Asher found the finances of the society had undergone an astonishing decline. Under Mr Whitfield and Ms Kemp, it had lost over 60% of its assets in two years. He said Erica Kemp's written attempts to justify the spending showed naivety and a lack of commercial intelligence. He found there was evidence of gross mismanagement of the society's affairs and that it had been run in a manner oppressive to those members not in control. The court appointed a Whangarei chartered accountant, Steve Bennett, as liquidator. I asked him if he might eventually refer the matter on to the police. One I'd rather not answer at this stage. Um, certain comments have been made by, uh, by the judge and by the, uh, the Crown, Crown solicitor and uh, Crown in- investigator that um, tend to point to uh, unusual transactions which may warrant further review by an organisation such as the police, but uh, I'm not prepared to make that call myself at this stage. The former IRD investigator has the authority to compel Mr Whitfield and Ms Kemp and other committee members to attend a judicial-style hearing into how and why they spent the association's money. He's about to use that power after Mr Whitfield failed to show up for an arranged meeting with the liquidator last week. Steve Bennett can also seize assets and decide if reparation is due. Back in September, Mark Whitfield put the Henry Street house up for sale. The mainly elderly hearing association members gathered outside the house with placards in what was for most the first protest action of their lives, forcing the cancellation of an open home. Last week, the house that Mark Whitfield bought cheaply from the society sold at auction for $330,000, but he won't see the profits. The liquidators frozen the proceeds. The final costs haven't, um, haven't come through yet, but the uh, amount uh, of surplus is likely to be around forty to 45000 I was quite pleased with that. We're hoping to recoup uh, money from the sale of the house on the basis that there was a garage and fit-out which the association paid for um, it hasn't um, been recouped. According to our numbers, that's 50000 Steve Bennett says all up about $250,000 worth of cash and assets may be available to the Whangarei Hearing Association to start over. That may sound reasonable, but it's less than half of what the society owned two short years ago. Mr Bennett says the scale and speed of the spending is unusual in this case, but it's surprisingly common for societies and trusts to lose significant amounts of money in similar ways. On average, he deals with two cases a year in Whangarei alone, and most fly under the official radar because members are too embarrassed to pursue justice. Typically it would be a a community-based sports club or or similar, where a treasurer or member of the committee has decided that they want to... uh, reward themselves some some extra <laughs> remuneration without the authority of the committee. We would do an, a, an investigating report, track the transactions as best we can, and in most cases the committee member or sometimes employee is, is terminated and by and large that's the end of it. I think there's, uh, there's a fear amongst committees where, especially where there's a family member involved, that they don't want to take the matter further for fear of the publicity or there is um, family reasons why they don't want to take action against this person. That's what we've observed anyway. The Registrar of Incorporated Societies Office says of the 22,000 trusts and incorporated societies in New Zealand, only a handful every year get into serious strife. Justin Highgate. Oh, it's it's uh, by far an exception, and we would have maybe two 
two types uh, or, or two severe instances in a year, uh, in any given year, where, where there's the sorts of um, issues that occurred uh, as in, in the Whangarei event. But that's small consolation for those affected by the collapse of community organisations like the Whangarei Hearing Association. Apart from the loss of a valued community building and services, former members still seethe over their powerlessness and the apparent inability of the authorities to intervene at an early stage. Anne Shaw says the fate of the Whangarei Society is a salutary lesson for any society, but especially those with older members and valuable property. I don't know whether we could have done any better. I think we were all in a state of shock that this sort of thing you know, can happen, that an organisation can so easily be taken over. Justin Highgate from the Registrar of Incorporated Societies Office says there may be a case for giving the Registrar the power to step in and, for instance, declare the results of an AGM null and void, especially where large assets are at stake. I can see that position and I can see that argument. And uh, it would require, unfortunately, you know, legislative change, but there may be, you know, that may be a useful legislative change. If you look at the number of times when that might be actually called upon, um, it, it, would, would, it would be achievable. Um, it's not as if every society has a row each time. We have similar, and we have obviously um, far more power in the company regime. So in the, in the case of the Companies Act and the Corporations Investigation Act, we have got uh, far, far broader powers to go in and investigate uh, and to, to look at the books and records and so on of companies. And, and uh, if similar provisions were they to exist in the incorporated societies regime would certainly make it clearer and cleaner and easier for us to go ahead and do those sorts of things. In fact, those sorts of powers may soon be exercised by the new Charities Commission, set up for the purpose of monitoring the voluntary sector, making it more transparent and accountable. Trevor Garrett, the Chief Executive, says the Commission's been focused mainly on registering the thousands of organisations wanting charitable status. But he says it's already getting calls from people complaining about perceived wrongdoing in their organisation. And it's surprising, and, and some of them are quite serious, uh, issues such as tax evasion, uh, conflicts of interest of trustees, uh, misuse of funds. Uh, so I think people are now starting to see that, yes, there is a place where we can go to. Uh, we're a, a relatively friendly organisation, and, and so I guess they don't feel too concerned about coming to us. Um, and so we're starting to look at, um, at how we're dealing with with, with the concerns that have been raised. Trevor Garrett says from next July the Commission will be prepared to investigate and act where there's evidence that an organisation is flouting its rules. He says in a case like the Whangarei Hearing Association it would visit the society and look into the complaints. Mr Garrett says if the Commission found an AGM had not been run correctly that opinion would lend significant weight to any court challenge by members. And if the wrongdoing continued, the threat of deregistration as a charity will not be an empty one. A couple of things that'll that'll follow from deregistration. The first is that any tax um, exemptions that they've been claiming, they will not be able to claim anymore. So for an organisation with significant income, uh, that would be a, a decent-sized penalty. But I think more importantly, if people are going out to the public asking for money, and they know that they are being asked by an organisation which has been deregistered as a charity by ourselves, uh, they should be asking themselves questions about why the organisation was deregistered and whether it is an organisation that they want to continue putting money into. But the MP Phil Heatley says for vulnerable voluntary organisations, the first and best defence against hijackers is for members to know the rules of their society's constitution backwards and insist they're observed. 
to the point of tedium if need be. The, the first point in this case here uh, is where it went astray and where it can be avoided is that organisations right throughout the country, whether they're uh, charities or incorporated societies or trusts, is that they have a very clear constitution and they stick with it. Now, I know this makes annual general meetings extremely boring, but uh, when you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars of capital tied up, uh, it's so easy to cut corners and then pay the price afterwards, which of course has happened here. And then secondly, when things do go wrong, it's important to get on top of it quickly and ensure it goes to the appropriate authorities. Colin Edwards agrees. He says in hindsight, spending $20,000 to go to court would have been money well spent. But he says if the Whangarei Hearing Association members had applied their own rules in the first place, they'd still have their building and their bank balance. The time at which they really lost it was at the meeting. If the person chairing the meeting at that point had said, this is not a legal meeting because all of you people are not legal members and I'm not prepared to go on with the meeting, I will close the meeting. And then they could have had another committee mem- a committee meeting. They could then have sifted through all the applications for membership and they were perfectly entitled to reject any applications that they thought were um, dubious. Mark Whitfield and his wife Erica Kemp couldn't be contacted to take part in this programme despite repeated attempts. Even the liquidator, Steve Bennett, has been unable to locate the couple. But he does have the address of the house Mr Whitfield moved a household lot of furniture to in Auckland last week, the day before he was supposed to meet the liquidator. Mr Bennett has now filed affidavits with the district court, giving him the right to search the property and compel the pair to return to Whangarei from wherever they might be and respond to a very long list of unanswered questions.